As I got another rhyme, another rhythm for y'all to listen. I'm never quitting on my mission. I'ma roll with what I'm giving. Got some main vision. This new edition, filling positions. Looking at the void in myself and feeling what's missing. Better watch the way you're going. Better go in the right direction. In the moment, you stressing, but you're going to be counting blessings. And I know that for certain. Keep on working, open curtains. Haters swerving, cause they ain't ready for your final version. I'm never going to give up, give up. Fall down, I just gotta get up, get up. You're listening to the Tom Ficklin Show on WNHHLP 103.5 FM, your home for community radio. Salutations, Connecticut. Salutations, the world. And I have some thank yous today. So thank you to Tom Ficklin for this time on the air. Thank you for 103.5 New Haven Radio for this time. And thank you to these four amazing corn mothers leaders in preservations of language and culture and dignity and all the wonderful things. Connecticut, you are about to have a treat. So we'll begin today. I'll ask out, uh, and we're going to talk about the intersectionality of, of language, culture, and literacy. And, and we just have fantastic people to do that over here. And I, I love the fact that where my guests are coming from Arizona, because Arizona is the ground zero for ethnic studies. It's the ground zero for fighting to be able to have our stories told in, in, in communities. I think the last time I was in Arizona, Angie, the Supreme Court had just thrown out the ban against ethnic studies in Arizona. So it's like almost everything that you ladies stand for, uh, the state often fights against. And I think we just, I think the governor Hobbs just beetled the bill that would have uh, uh, banned the, the, the terms uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion in in in, in schools. So, but anyway, uh, let us begin with uh, our guest, and I'll ask them all to introduce themselves. So, uh, Geneva, can you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about you and your passions? Yes, Buenos dias. Good morning. Buenos dias. <laughs> um, Geneva Escobedo. Uh, I have um, been retired now about five years, uh, which um, I'm totally enjoying. Um, I have worked in higher education, both at the university and community college level for over 30 years. And my passion has always been education and helping others uh, achieve their degree. And I've done that in in many ways. uh, overseen student services, uh, recruited students, helped with retention programs, developed grants to support students through um, through their educational programs. Um, so my work life um, really involved a lot of um, issues around higher education, preparing those that were under um, underprepared for higher ed. Um, they call it developmental education. I spent a lot of years there. But lately, my passion is writing. Um, I'm a fairly new author. You know, I decided after I retired, I'm going to write and I'm going to publish my first book, which I did. It's called Dichos de mi Padre, Sayings of My Father, which is a lot about the Mexican culture and passing down those sayings or dichos to um, the next generation. So I wrote a book about it so youngsters could um, could read, and um, I'm tr- I'm working on promoting that. 
Excellent, excellent, excellent. So we know your passion. All right. And Octaviano, and I, I know I, I just butchered her name, and she's going to be mad at me, but she's going to oh, pronounce no. it right. I mean, <laughs> we're talking, I'm here with linguists who are defending languages in the nation and, and, and perfect uh, speakers in multiple tongues. I'm sorry there, but introduce yourself and tell us all about you. Good morning. And Jesse, you're wonderful. So no, I just, uh, it's not just you. It's so many others that uh, see my long, long name and then they shorten it. So I always have to uh, try to stand up for my grandmother. I was named after my grandmother. I am a professor emerita of applied indigenous studies at Northern Arizona University. I've been a professor at all three state universities. Uh, in Arizona, I began my career, professional academic career at the University of Arizona. Then I was uh, recruited to Arizona State University. And then I was recruited to Northern Arizona University to begin um, the Applied Indigenous Studies Department. Um, currently, I am a Soros Equality Fellow doing work with Indigenous peoples along the border, protecting sacred sites, gathering grounds, really access uh, um, and mobility for indigenous peoples along the border. Um, and I'm also the uh, current chair for the Joint Public Advisory Committee for the Commission of North America for Environmental Cooperation uh, between Canada, US and Mexico. And I'm very happy to be part of uh, this gathering this morning, beautiful morning. Thank you, Jesse. Thank you, thank you. And Dr. Cepeda, you can introduce yourself and uh, tell us all about you. And we know your passion is in twofold, preserving languages, poetry, uh, and the desert. Mm -hmm. Go ahead, share. Anindophilia Cepeda. Yeah, I'm Jitimia Tana Autumn Hajotikam, Homonia Hapata, Ia Chukshona. Yes, he's up on that. I'm journey, or the journey. Again, I'm uh, Ophelia Cepeda, and I'm Tohana Autumn, and I currently uh, I live here in the city of Tucson and work here at the University of Arizona. I'm faculty in the Department of Linguistics, and I'm also the director of the American Indian Language Development Institute, which is housed in the College of Education. Uh, and um, of course, the other thing I do is write um, poetry. And I've been uh, in this uh, work of um, education, especially language education and research uh, for all of my adult career. That's what I started in and I'm, I'm still uh, working in that area uh, currently. Um, I have um, three books, four books of poetry, uh, and I write uh, both in my first language, Autumn, and also in English. And um, currently, um, uh, my work has been focusing on um, graduate students, uh, native graduate students who have an interest and desire to get uh, academically trained in, in linguistics to work on their own language to benefit their own community. Uh, because as you know, historically, We've always had outsiders work on our languages and pretty much dictate um, the descript descriptions and uh, more recently the teaching 
of our our languages. So now we have young people and then some, of course some mature speakers who are very interested in getting training and um, become, you know, sort of uh, advocates within their own communities for their own language in all areas uh, of the language. Uh, I'm currently um, have an international role. Um, in uh, 2022, UNESCO began or designated the beginning of the International Decade of Indigenous Languages. And um, uh, anyway, so of course, it's going to go on for 10 years. And I was selected as the uh, um, representatives to the International Task Force for the decade. So I attend international meetings, primarily on Zoom. Um, uh, well, initially to do some of the planning and then, of course, promote activities uh, around the international decade. Um, so anyway, so that's what I'm doing now besides my my writing. Yeah, we did, not only a decade, we need a, a lifetime. Oh, yeah. yeah. Excellent, excellent. Great work. Uh, Angie, uh, can you, Dr. Listo, can you tell us uh, about you? And, and I know Angie very well. We work together. So um, that should be fun. All right, go ahead, sister. Angelina Listo. Ko amjet tana atam hajurka um bochiman sis sis sisapentat uh humosh is theorem what your high chu ah um high joha mushra humachkam in behab jewish jewat dam. I just want to say that um very happy, good morning, very happy to be here with uh, Jesse and his radio program. And I say a big good morning from the Tonautum Desert to the East Coast, which is Searic Dagyo, where the sun comes up from, from where I am, where I sit today, this morning. And uh, that <clears throat> my work has been primarily been in higher education. I've had the opportunity to work um, in three different kinds of institutions, um, starting my career and the longest with Pima Community College here in Tucson, which at the time was the fifth largest community college in the nation and has continued to grow since then in the late 90s. And then I went to uh, serve as um, a vice president of student uh, services for a new tribal college for our nation, Don Altham Community College, and uh, helped to uh, get it accredited and become a full-fledged institution, which uh, is there now to serve the people of the nation and also serving in uh, uh, land-grant research one university uh, where Dr. Zapata is currently. So I had the opportunity of being at uh, University of Arizona and then my recent uh, and most uh, most recent uh, career has been uh, at least a tenure in um, the tribal gaming business here in Arizona, 
And uh, so I've done a lot of things and I always question, you know, why I ended up where I ended up and did the things I did. And I sort of look at myself as a builder of things. You know, it seems that when the calling came, I was called to go do something. And so I followed that. And and that's how I ended up doing a lot of things. And one of the things I also question myself is my most recent uh, involvement with a worldwide organization known as Rotary International. And someone asked me, why are you in that Rotary? It's not native. <laughs> it's uh, primarily, you know, uh, Anglo people. And, uh, you know, there's other countries that are involved in, you know, representing, represented in Rotary. And I, and I had to think about it for, for a while, you know, before I joined. And I thought, you know, it's just an extension of me. It's helping. It's helping people in my community helping people in the state of Arizona, and now the opportunity to work, you know, beyond borders internationally. And so I, you know, that just goes back to my core, my fundamental, you know, uh, way of life is being, you know, helping and being a servant to others, making life better for others. So I'm sort of uh, semi-retired, I guess. I I took a break from work and, uh, you know, trying to define where, where I get, I fit, or if somebody out there is calling, you know, be a builder of something, I'm, I'm here. <laughs> so that's all. Uh, Thank you. Fantastic. Fine. Uh, one of, yeah, uh, 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 Angie also did the, um, it's, it's really an amazing dissertation on, on the mission of the NA College. Uh, uh, first tribal college. So that, that will come into play somewhere along here. But that scholarship is a seminal piece of research in, in the nation. Um, and I'm sure it would be followed because next we're going to have Total Autham Community College, all tribal colleges. Uh, we can have all those dissertations and all those researchers. But something, what, what I want to bring us to this point today, and I think it can connect to something that uh, my own dissertation was on the Tohoto Autham students and Yankee students in the Upward Bound program with Angie. And one of the things that we, 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 we did was we shifted the invitation to literacy from to uh, be about language, culture, and heritage. And so that meant that reading and that English curriculum on Saturdays was uh, filling students with, with native authors and native stories. And uh, and, and it were often way above their reading levels. And trust me, they met the challenge, no problem over there. But one of the things that in the, what I love the most about the research in uh, the dissertation only covered two years, but I think we did it for five years, Angie. And the retention rate, the high school retention rate, if you attended that program on Saturdays for one year, was 97.6. That's the retention rate, and it was amazing. So I bring us today to this question as all across our nation, in Florida, in Texas, in Arizona, I think there's 38 states trying in one way or another, impeding uh, any kind of diversity, inclusion, and equity, anything native, anything black, anything immigrant in the nation seems to be under assault. So I, I, I wanted to 
and and I, I think we can do it uh, personal stories because I I think those personal narratives matter. I have four incredible women on this panel today as guests who have moved that intersectionality, who have overcome obstacles with literacy. Uh, and and I, I when I look at the four of you and I've studied your work all week long, I realize that language and culture was really a key and a door and a empowering and that you know to that literacy intersectionality so i i'm going to follow that path i'm going to go the opposite this time so i have angelina then i'll go to ophelia and octaviana and then geneva and what i'll say is can you share a little bit about your literacy journey so angie if you can share that and how it impacted uh culture and and language and all those things and, and most of our schooling is it that much removed from boarding schools in the sense that how much of our schooling is about who we are as a people? So a Angelina, you're up. Yeah, okay. Uh, um, thank you for that question. And uh, <clears throat> I have to acknowledge my, my elders here. Um, <clears throat> I like the introduction, the way that it started was with uh, the three uh, women uh, Geneva, Octaviana, and Ophelia, and I respect them because they're women, Native women, Indigenous women, and also uh, that they're they're older than me, and so I would have the opportunity to speak before them at this time, starting out, you know, explaining or sharing some of my literacy journey. So I just want to start by saying that um, I grew up on the Thonawthorn Nation Reservation. And um, at that time, uh, I had moved, our family had moved from, um, from uh, what is now Green Valley. It was continental Arizona. There was a place out there that uh, we lived, our families lived in the farms, helping to pick uh, uh, cotton and uh, some ranching work was done at that farm and, and I lived there for 10 years of my life. And I started school there and have really faint memories of that. And then um, <clears throat> because our family was growing from uh, three three siblings and our parents and, and uh, another one coming along the way and they decided to move us all back to where I grew up and my father's, uh, my father's uh, um, place place um, on the reservation. So I went into um, a mission school there and uh, that's where I started. And it was uh, like a two room schoolhouse. And uh, we didn't have very much. It was a, you know, a mission school. And um, our, our parents um, sort of, they, they reinforced reading. And uh, our place had no electricity and no running water. And uh, every evening before supper, they would put on a gas lamp so we could sit around the table and read, you know, the kids, the three of us that were going to school. And so they reinforced that. And, and uh, what I remember of uh, any kind of reading material coming into the home, it was the Life magazine. Uh, you may remember that. It was a big magazine called Life Magazine. And I remember looking through that, looking at photos. And, and, uh, and then I remember uh, seeing um, 
John F. Kennedy, when he the reading about him and seeing the pictures when he was um, shot <clears throat> in Dallas. And so that kind of left an imprint, you know, in terms of reading. And, and I still have, I kept that Lifetime magazine. Uh, I still have it somewhere in my collection, my archives. But uh, <clears throat> we, um, we also, our, our parents had ordered a book, uh, uh, a collection of books like Sleeping Beauty and uh, all those children's books. And they, they put a, they put a shelf just for those books. I don't know. I think it was like five or six of the major children's stories. And so we would share that and read that. And I think today my older sister got that collection of books in her home now, moved it from our parents' home where we grew up and she has it in her home. So reading was always reinforced. And, um, but, you know, we still, we still had, I still had a, difficult time reading I would say the same all through my my college education had a difficult time reading because I still didn't have a, a command or master you know English language and so I always carried a dictionary with me so that I could you know look up a word that I've heard for the first time and you know try to learn it and and you know my dictionary, is actually on my bookshelf, the one that I had carried through college and a little paperback dictionary and it's all worn out. But um, that's, you know, that's that's the story that I have, you know, with my literacy, my literacy journey. And so, you know, I wasn't, it, it wasn't, I don't have to share this. It wasn't until I got to um, University of Arizona that I began reading uh, something that was in autumn and that of course is from the course that I took with Dr. Cepeda uh, on the autumn language and so I started seeing you know writings about native native history native traditions native culture and and uh, you know I, I was just having a conversation the other day and I said we had to I had to wait until I got to the university to read anything native, anything about culture, you know, whether it was my own or, you know, the, the, um, you know, the, about other, other native people, other indigenous people. So, you know, I thought it was, it was backwards, <laughs> you know, it should have been in the, in the elementary schools. It should have been in junior high. It should have been in high school, but I had to wait until I got to college to read all this wonderful histories that are out there. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, that that's true for for many for many people. Lots of public education is devoid of any culture, devoid of you know it's it's just insane. But uh, for native people, for uh, Latin people, uh, it's it's Angie. I remember we did a tribal presentation and we looked at traditional ways of Anglo kinds of learning, reading, writing, and speaking. And we looked at what was not included. And I remember with the uh, tribal council, I put things like dance, heritage, culture. We dropped them in on the little PowerPoint color slide, which was big back then. And eyes lit up. And, and, and I remember uh, us saying to them, if these things could be part of schooling, we know that our students would be more engaged and stuff. But uh, 
let's go. Uh, Dr. Cepeda, since I, we heard you were a tough grader too. So if Angie <laughs> passed your class, you, you, you don't yeah. go easy on native people. I know that. <laughs> I have people who have been in your class, but Dr. Cepeda, <laughs> if you could tell us uh, a little bit about your journey, and uh, it would be a delight. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. Well, Angie's always been a good student. Um, oh, very similar to Angie, you know, growing up, just uh, I've always been off reservation. And the reason for that is because um, my parents, both of them are their home, traditional home is on the Sonora side of, of Autumn Land. And so they came into the U.S., uh, in the 40s and 50s and, you know, sort of settled uh, on the edges of the reservation. And so we ended up in a little uh, cotton farming community called Stanfield, Arizona. And that's where um, my siblings and I were born and raised uh, off reservation. And, um, and like Angie's family, we worked uh, farm labor. Our parents did picking cotton because that time, you know, it was, that's the way it was done by hand. So we picked cotton, my, both my parents did, and we also did as children, we had to help our parents. And um, so we were just out there sort of, I, in a way, isolated because um, there were camps, you know, in Arizona with these uh, large farms, there were camps set up by the ranchers that housed uh, people who did the labor there. And a lot of them were autumn. Many autumn will come up off the reservation, lived there seasonally, and then go back. We lived there permanently. Um, and there were others as well, uh, uh, mostly, of course, people of color uh, would come and do the, the, the seasonal work. Uh, anyway, so because of where we lived, I went to a public school. And all of us, are my siblings, we started school very late because my parents and no one in there across their generation ever went to school. No one before them ever went to school. So they just didn't have that as part of, you know, their world. And so we were, of course, back then they had truant officers that would drive around the fields and pick up random children that were not, that were supposed to be in school. And that's how, that was our introduction to schooling. And it wasn't too traumatic, you know. Uh, so we all started late. You know, we were all, you know, these class pictures were always the biggest ones in the classroom because we're off schedule. And uh, of course, none of us spoke English because uh, our parents didn't. And so we had that, you know, to deal with. And uh, of course, some of the, the Arizona, well, all the Arizona people here, those of you in College of Ed, and I know, Jesse, you know, uh, the Goodmans, who did all the, the work on literacy and here in, in reading. Uh, I was part of one of their studies. And one of the questions was how, uh, they just assumed they had a traumatic experience with, with not being uh, able to speak English when I entered school. And of course, back then you didn't have bilingual ed and so forth. And it's one of those, what they call, so I was a product of the sink or swim method. You know, you're just, they just put you in there and you sit there and see what happens. So. Um, so I was one of the people that decided to swim and picked up English and took me a couple of repeats of grades and uh, and all of us did that, you know, the Hispanic children that were in our school area, they did the same thing. So anyway, so, so wasn't that traumatic? Teachers never said anything to you about using your language because we were using it with our brothers and sisters just to like survival, 
language in the school setting, so which is whole, a whole nother story. But the reading part, the reading and writing of English, once I started it, I um, I enjoyed it. You know, I don't know why, but I did. And I have a sister just younger than me who's who um, is an avid reader from early, early on. Soon as she became literate, she was reading everything. And uh, and I don't know. Back then, the schools were like would clean out at the end of the semester, clean out the old textbooks and stuff like that. And they put them out and they tell us we could, you know, if you want something, you can take it. And we took everything that we could, you know, we took math books, geography books, history books, English grammar books, and we just took them home. And these were all hardcover books because back then that's the way schools had books. And so that was our library with those used discarded books from the schools. And especially my younger sister and I, we loved using those books. We taught ourselves a lot during the summertime. We taught ourselves geography, American history, and some of the classic um, early writers. I tended to gravitate to them, which is strange. You know, William Faulkner was one of my <laughs> favorite writers. And I never realized, well, it's because he's writing about people and family and hard times, which is kind of like, Indian people, you know, family and hard times. So I really enjoyed that work. And it taught me a lot about American culture. That's what it did and gave me perspective on my own and, and seeing where, you know, we sort of fit. And also trying to understand how when things happened, you know, um, you know, uh, the, the divisions, the hierarchies, you know, between white and Indians, white and, and um, uh, Hispanic children, you know, you started to figure that out very early on. And I, I understood it better from my reading other people and their perspectives from other parts of the U.S. Um, so since then, like I said, I've always enjoyed reading, uh, not so much writing, uh, but later I found out in high school and, and onward um, that uh, I could write and some you know, my teachers did tell me I could write. I could write stories my grammar was terrible. I nearly failed my first, you know, English, freshman English because of that. Um, but a lot of Native people struggle with that, the grammar part. Uh, and like Angie, I didn't see autumn, the autumn language written until I got to college. And that was my motivation for wanting to learn how to read and write autumn was because I saw one book written in autumn. And um I had somebody teach me autumn, and that was sort of the beginning of my interest in looking at my own language from that perspective, you know, as a written form and, you know, teaching about it and using it. So anyway, so that's a yeah. little bit about myself. Thank that, you. That's a, a perfect piece before we go to Atabiana, uh, a, a story, a little short story of Tohoro uh, Autumn uh, elder, Danny Lopez, who used to visit uh, my classroom and Danny passed away, but he always had this beautiful way of talking to talking to our kids and and about language. He he, he one day in class he said, "You need to you need to speak Tonalotum. You need to speak speak your language. If you can't speak your language, you don't know who you are. You won't be able to. You can't be completely Tonalotum. You'll be Reebok." He told them, he said, that's what you'll be. You'll be Reebok. And I, I remember that, but he was a wonderful visit, visitor. But yes, we come to that. And it, it's, 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 it's interesting if we do any analysis of especially children's literature, we start finding 
that overwhelming majorities are Anglized books. And we're only now starting to grow in some of that diversity and we're still far behind. And, and languages, you know, a few of you speak two languages, probably three. I know Octaviana does over there. Uh, you know, that should be valued in our schools. But okay, Octaviana, uh, Octaviana, oh, I got to get it right. You can say it one more time for me so I can get it right. I got to get it right. Otherwise, Ophelia is going to fail me in class. <laughs> well, you know, listening to these stories by, I mean, the the conversation, the story uh, with uh, that Angie has shared and Ophelia, um, we have similar, uh, similar um uh, experience with the public schools, with schooling. Um, I was born and raised in Guadalupe, a small village outside of Phoenix. Uh, and of course, that public school, Guadalupe school, all the children uh, were uh, Yaqui or Mexican-American. And of course, at that time in Arizona, you could only teach in the public schools English. And it was against the law to use any other language but English in the public schools. And of course, uh, punishing anyone that spoke their native language was common uh, by the teachers there, by, by the principal. Um, and so uh, you learn very, very quickly that we, you need to uh, uh, learn English. And so, uh, and uh, it was a sink or swim. And of course, uh, I too swam and loved uh, reading. Uh, and continued uh, on my education. However, so many of my other peers did not. You started with a, a good group of students from Guadalupe at the, uh, to our high school, but uh, before uh, the second year of high school, most of them had been pushed out of the system uh, and never graduated. I went on uh, to, to college um, because of Upward Bound. I am a graduate of the Upward Bound program. And it really helped to make that uh, connection to higher education. And I became the first uh, graduate on both sides of my family, uh, like I'm sure with Ophelia and Angie. And so I persisted. And I think uh, we have that passion, that, that strength to persist regardless of all these other obstacles. So when I graduated, I, was, I became a bilingual uh, teacher, returned back to Guadalupe and became a bilingual teacher. And then during the summers, I started um, a summer program with uh, the Yaqui so that children could start learning about uh, the Yaqui uh, in the sense of Yaqui literacy. You know, and so that was uh, wonderful that we could promote that and also started uh, with the Head Start program, um, the Yankee language uh, for parents as well as the students and those that could come uh, to teach the Yankee language. Um, once I graduated, uh, uh, completed my, 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 I guess my terminal degree, I joined the Department of Language, Reading and Culture at the University of Arizona, of course, uh, that's uh, many of you are familiar with LRC. You come from uh, the work of LRC. And uh, I was uh, then that same year, uh, I uh, uh, joined the Pasquayaki Tribal Council. Uh, I was a reluctant leader, I think, at that time, but uh, I was asked by the elders uh, that they needed someone like me to really help in tribal nation building. 
Um, so I was able to do both. Uh, fortunately, I was able to still teach at LRC. Um, and I started the first special topics class on the Pascoyaki Reservation on Yaki literacy. And I continue working with the Pascoyaki tribe. We're building a uh, early childhood um, educational center on the reservation. And there's a team of us, including uh, Terry McCarty, that's going to really put the foundation for a very unique curriculum uh, so that we have trilingualism and that we begin with a very young and, and uh, family literacy. Uh, and I'm glad uh, that that is happening. And so even though I am uh, formally retired, I seem to be working more now than I ever did before as a volunteer. Um, and I also continue to work with Tona Otham Community College. They have a major National Science Foundation uh, with regards to the STEM fields. So I work with wonderful folks there, faculty, including Camillus, Camillus Lopez and I work with the faculty so that we actually bring uh, Hemdog as part of the curriculum and what is being offered there in incorporating Tohono uh, Atham uh, linguistically, culturally into the STEM field. So I, uh, I have much to learn uh, and I continue on this path of learning and trying to offer uh, help where I can. Right, excellent. Uh, just before we go to Geneva, I had a conversation with former Secretary of Education, Ani Duncan, from the Obama administration. And he kept saying that uh, diverse communities needed grit. Grit, and I'm like, you need a, they need grit? I don't think you understand that these communities are resilient, have more grit than you ever imagined. <laughs> have overcome the obstacles. You don't need, they don't need tough love. <laughs> they, they need support. They need resources. They don't need any more grit. And he looked at me like I was uh, insane. But anyway, it's there. Geneva, can you tell us a little bit? By the way, uh, just to give, before we get to Geneva, my daughter went to Tucson schools as a child, arrived in Connecticut. We're supposed to be the first state. So my daughter's teacher sent home a note from her school saying that Aaron objected to Connecticut, Connecticut being the first state because Arizona was around long before Connecticut. I forget when we had our founding state, like 1776 <laughs> or something that signs onto that document. And she's going, well, we were here like a thousand years before that. So she went to Drachman Elementary School in Tucson in the barrio. And her teachers made sure to let her know that, uh, long before Arizona was part of the United States of America. It was autumn, it was, it was yaki, it was Mexican. Just, just gotta remember that. I just thought that uh, she, she didn't get in trouble. I went back to the teacher, but uh, was kind of interesting. Geneva, sorry to interrupt you there, but. Oh, no, that's fine. Well, listening to uh, these wonderful women um, triggered some memories of, of uh, my literacy growing up. Uh, I grew up in a small rural uh, community, Safford, Arizona, southeastern Arizona. So um, my my mother um, didn't finish high school, uh, and my father only went to eighth grade. Uh, my mom uh, grew up in a segregated school until they changed the rules. 
So they really impressed upon me how important education was. And a couple of things I remember that they did to encourage our reading and encourage our our interest in education uh, is they would order these scholastic magazines. They would come um, every month and I loved them because I could do the activities and I would really get engaged in that. And then as I was going through middle school and high school, they ordered encyclopedias so that we could um, read about lots of different things. So um, I really um, was blessed that they supported us in that way. I always loved English, loved uh, reading. Um, my grandmother, my maternal grandmother was from Mexico, from Chihuahua, her and my grandfather immigrated when they were very young. And she spoke uh, a little bit of English, but she really impressed upon us how important our language is. Hablame en español, speak to me in Spanish. And I'm really glad that I was raised really close to her. I lost her when I was in eighth grade, but her, um, her stories have made an impression on me. And I think it's because of her that I've become a storyteller through my writing and through my poetry. But I've always um, loved reading. Um, I read constantly. Uh, I do write some of my work is in Spanish, mostly the poems that, that I've published. Uh, not that many, but that's always a part of it. And um, my writing includes Spanish and just a lot about about my culture, which I th I think it's important to share. Um, I do want to say that um, the challenge, the challenges before us again in Arizona is the you know squashing of of diversity and um, bilingualism and so forth. Uh, my book Vichos de mi Padre, which is my first book. Uh, was purchased by Tucson Unified School District in their um, uh, culturally responsive pedagogy and, and uh, instruction program. And there's a real concern there that given the, the state legislature of what that might do to that program. So I asked one of the uh, one of the senior teachers, uh, you know, what's going on? Can we do something? So they're working on putting an advisory board to uh, to fight this notion of, you know, erasing all of that. And we've worked so hard over the years and been persistent at fighting and we will continue to do so. Um, and just, you know, what can I tell you? Persistence is an important thing. It's... Uh... It's when we studied in 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 my in my dissertation, part of the literature review was studying uh, boarding schools in America, and the history is definitely an attempt to to kill the Indian, in in the Indian in the in the school, the language, the culture, the heritage, the story, with the cutting of the hair, the not speaking the language, all of that stuff, and it's the same with um, uh, I, we're just I think we're just a couple of days away. From, from celebrating uh, Cesar Chavez's birthday, but uh, he tells the story of how we couldn't go into restaurants in 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 Arizona. But uh, 
where, where I'm going to go to Octaviana and and uh, and I'd like us to to shift the question here because now we've done the literacy, and and I really I want to put us into a hope mode. And while our schools have been have not been fully friendly and embracing of of, of language and culture and heritage, I, I I like to know what can we do? What can we do different? Because they're called public schools because they belong to the public. And and on uh, on Yaki land and on Otham land, they are Otham and Yaki over there. You know, so I and, and I find upon Angie just before we we actually go up she was at a, a a community meeting where one of the cultural representatives was talking about this anti-wake legislation going on and in our stuff. But Octaviana, what could we do? I know you you talked, they gave us the early childhood center. That that's that's like that's number one in the research. Well, you know, critical race theory is something that uh, many um, conservative legislatures around the country are rarely attacking. You see that in Florida. You certainly see it here in Arizona. And that's what Governor Hobbs said. I'm not going to sign this because it would have just really created such negative repercussion to teachers uh, in our public schools. I think what we can do is engage, engage in the conversations, uh, be part of, of strong organizations to stand up for what we believe in, for the children, for the families, so that, uh, and that we vote. You know, we, 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 we have the power of voting and organizing around voting to make sure that we elect individuals that are going to represent our interests that are going to advocate for diversity, that are going to advocate for the right to speak our native language and for, for our schools to have uh, cultural diversity, that we understand the strengths that come from being uh, bilingual, multilingual, to, to really learn about each other's cultures. Because the more we know uh, about other cultures, we know more about ourselves and, and what we value in our life, what we value in our communities, what uh, uh, those values are really important to, you know, the, the, the core values that we have are of our own heritage, of our own tribal nation really sustains us. And it really has sustained us since time immemorial. And that's why we're still here on your show, talking about the importance of who we are as indigenous people, as indigenous women, and why it's important for us to raise our voices and really be counted and, and really come to the table when decisions are being made about our own life ways and our own destiny. Definitely, definitely. It's, it's, it's this attack upon culture and language is great. We're coming to Ophelia because so much of our work is around defending and preserving uh, language. And so, uh, Ophelia, maybe we change the question, not change it, but a little bit, if you could emphasize what we can do in our schools to preserve our languages. I think okay. there yeah. you go. You uh, yeah, well, over the, you know, all of my career here at the university, I've worked with uh, indigenous language educators. The majority of these uh, educators, though, um, teach in their own 
uh, either tribal school or language program. And then a smaller uh, group of them do teach uh, language in the public schools that sit on their reservation or else public schools that uh, are just off reservation, but that's the only public school available to their uh, children. So they have, you know, some say, you know, in the curriculum, but of course it's never enough uh, because typically the language uh, education and curriculum that they're typically allowed in a public school is um, uh, K through about two or three. They, you know, um, for some reason have this in line that they don't go uh, above that, uh, which really makes no sense. Um, but that's unfortunately been the history. And this is like for teaching language and culture in schools, uh, both on and off reservation. There has been lots of headway with tribes, very taking strong positions, especially tribes who have severe language loss um, and they need all the help that they can. You know, they can't do it just from within the tribe with their own people. They need the support of the, the schools that uh, serve their their um, uh, children. So they've taken, you know, very strong positions and and have made that happen a little bit of a time, a little bit at a, at a time. So, um, you know, we've all been very happy to see that. Um, so schools have a role, you know, it's not just the tribe, you know, because a lot of out mainstream people think like, well, you know, it's, it's the autumn, it's the autumn language, it's their business, they, you know, take care, you know, but they don't realize that our children also go to public schools, which are still English dominant, you know, so that has to, to change and people can't see, you know, uh, the situation there that uh, you can't um, promote language or support promoting language and culture if it's English dominant, um, if it's an English dominant school. Um, one thing that I, I did want to, um, uh, mentioned was um, uh, many tribes uh, and, and I mean, it's happening across the US where um, have worked with their state departments of ed to have a, uh, to allow, allow tribes to test or de design uh, tests for their own teachers for language teachers specifically. Uh, and that the test uh, once, you know, an individual passes the, the test on, on language and culture teaching, that the State Department certifies them to be language and culture teachers in any school. But that's all they can do is language and culture. They can't go off and teach science if they wanted to. They can only do that. So it isn't that. So many tribes, you know, in Arizona and New Mexico, you know, Montana has it as well. Alaska, Minnesota, they certify many of their language teachers that way. So the argument that lots of public school administrators have when you talk to them when they say, oh, there are no language teachers. There are no certified language teachers that, you know, we can hire. That's no longer true. They are there, they, you know, and they are and can be certified through the tribe. And it is, like you said, um, um, uh, accepted by the State Department of Education. So that was a big benefit to many um, uh, tribes here and potential teachers. Uh, here in the Southwest, you know, for the schools that serve uh, Native uh, children. And then one last point that I want to make, being having been in the field of linguistics uh, all my adult career, um, I've always advocated that 
anyone who want who gets a degree in education to be a certified teacher in a school should take just a course in linguistics. It doesn't have to be on Native American stuff, just in linguistics, because that's where you learn about what languages, what a language is and what a language does and all that a language carries. Even if you studied about, you know, uh, English, that's fine. You have a different perspective of the, you know, maybe it's a, your first language, but then that gives you, you know, sort of the, sometimes the ammunition and certainly the skills to understand and be more open to all the languages that are going to be represented in your schools or the language and cultures that are going to be represented in your classrooms. And just having you know that little bit of knowledge, I think goes a long way for educators. I always tell teachers, you know, that you need that you should take a class in linguistics, introduction to linguistics. It's a lot of fun, you know, it opens your eyes and um but uh, not too many have taken me up on that. But anyway, I always advocate for it. We're getting there. We're getting there. Yeah. We're pushing forward. Mm -hmm. uh, Angie, if you've, we're, we're coming down to our last five minutes. So if we try to keep it down to like two, just not, I know, short, but if you can share what we can do. Uh, and and I, I like this idea. How do we preserve language, culture, and heritage? And I think our schools need to be our partners. And, and it can't be just K to three, as Ophelia said. If 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 other countries are K to twelve, pre-K to twelve, then then it should be here as well. Yeah. Okay. I'll try to pull that together, and so that the remaining panelists have uh, can chime in also on this. <clears throat> First, I I want to say that um, the the program that Jesse talked about. Uh, and also Taviana had mentioned about her learning Himda because she is Yaki, but she's working with Don Autumn. So she's learning about Himda, the Autumn Himda. And Jesse mentioned that, that terminology also. And that just refers to the whole um, worldview of, um, of Don Autumn. And maybe there is a term in, in, in Mexican or Yaki that, sort of captures all of that, you know, so I wanted to just make sure that um, I um, educated people out there about that term because it's a, you know, it's a foreign language probably to some people out there. Um, so I just want to say that uh, in my early days starting out at Pima Community College, uh, the, the training in uh, diversity, inclusion, and equity uh, was cultural sensitivity. And, you know, that was over 20 years ago. And now it's uh, DIE or DEI, excuse me. Uh, <clears throat> that was, we worked so hard to, you know, to have that, that part of, um, you know, uh, learning about each other's, you know, across the institutions. And just recently I read that, you know, our state legislature there's two bills, you know, one of them is to exclude uh, uh, diversity, uh, equ equality and inclusion from the state universities that's out there. And also also the um, banned book ban. So there needs to be. Yeah.
as I got I'm another, another rhythm for you. Right there. Uh, uh, thank you for blessing me with your presence today. Of all mothers, and we'll have to have a follow-up show. We will do it. Love you. Thank you. Much love. Bye. I know that for certain. Keep on working. Open curtains. Haters swerving because they ain't ready for your final version. I'm never gonna give up. Give up. Fall down. I just gotta get up. Get up.